Our sermon text this morning is found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 26. It is found in the back of your order of worship, that portion of God's word, if you'd like to follow along there. As I read this morning, I'm going to read not only verses 17 to 26, but also 8 to 16, which forms an important context for our text this morning. I invite you now to listen once more to God's holy and inerrant word. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And Yahweh said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me shall kill me. Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujiel, and Mahujiel fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who pray the lyre, who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. 
For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Thus far the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. And I ask now that by your Spirit, you would enable us to read and mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this portion of your word, that we might evermore hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life that you have given us in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the points on which the scriptures are most insistent from beginning to end is that there are only two fundamental ways to live in the world. There are only two paths that the human race can take. It is either the way of righteousness or the way of wickedness, the way of folly or the way of wisdom, the way of goodness or the way of evil. Famously, Moses lays out for Israel before she goes into the promised land both the blessing and the curse, the way of life and the way of death. Psalm 1, the gateway to the Psalter, insists that its readers, though they should not, they might walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers or they might and should delight themselves in the law of the Lord, which will make them like a fruitful tree planted by streams of living water. And that psalm concludes with this firm warning and promise about the outcome of these two ways. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, the psalmist says, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Proverbs follow a similar line of reasoning all throughout um, its instruction and wisdom. Solomon instructs his son and again and again that he must choose either between the way of wisdom or the way of folly. And he promises that the way of wisdom will lead to honor and life and peace, while folly will end in death and darkness. The prophets are similarly insistent. The way of repentance and faith which is open to their hearers, will result in blessing and prosperity, while continued wickedness and hard-heartedness will be met with the terrible judgment of God. Jesus doesn't do anything new. He speaks in similar terms, very similar terms, all over the place in his teaching about the way of goodness and the way of evil. In particular, in his Sermon on the Mount, he concludes his teaching by telling his disciples that they must either listen to his words and do them, thereby building their houses on the rock, or ignore his teaching, listen and not obey, therefore building their houses on the sand, which will lead to their destruction. As modern people, this kind of strict bifurcation 
that the Bible engages in and insists upon perhaps may not sit easily with us. It feels a little simplistic. I mean, isn't there some nuance here, right? Mightn't there be a path in the middle, right? Something that is, yes, maybe less than righteous, but isn't really that evil that might not lead to total destruction? But friends, we must be careful of trying to be wiser than God. From the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures speak in this way. And in our passage this morning, we get on some of the very first pages of the scripture, a dramatic picture of the effects of wickedness, the consequence of turning away from the path of righteousness in the story of Cain and his immediate descendants. Cain, as we heard in the beginning of our passage this morning, has murdered his brother Abel and been sentenced, therefore, by God to a lifetime of wandering as a fugitive, though God is merciful. He does not strike Cain down dead. He gives him time to repent, likely hundreds of years of time to repent. But instead of accepting and submitting to God's judgment and turning away from his violence and Embracing repentance, Cain settles in the land of Nod, we're told. And there he builds a city. Notice that. Cain does not accept God's sentence and wander as a fugitive. He settles. He builds a city. He is not content with impermanence. He desires to make himself strong. In a very real sense, Cain's city is founded on Abel's murder, on the bloodshed of his brother. He could not live at peace with his brother, and so he kills him and founds a city, a city erected in defiance of God and his justice. Interestingly, Augustine points out that the empire of Rome was founded in just the same way as Romulus rose up and put Ramus to death and founded the city of Rome. Now, one of the interesting things about the city that Cain builds is that it does possess real cultural achievements. His descendants develop animal husbandry. They learn and develop the art of breeding livestock and shepherding them from place to place that they might eat and grow strong and be useful to human beings. They work with metal and forge instruments of bronze and iron. Yes, certainly weapons of warfare, I'm sure, but likely also domestic tools Implements for farming and mining and carpentry. And the city that Cain builds is not only interested in economic developments or military developments. They also develop a kind of culture. His descendants make lyres and pipes and develop skill in music. All of this is true. All of this is evidence of God's common grace. The grace that he gives to the just and the unjust. But still, there is rottenness at the heart, at the foundation of Cain's city. This rottenness that is at the heart of all human civilizations that reject the way of God. And it develops and grows and turns in a not very long period of time into something monstrous. Lamech, Cain's direct descendant, just several generations removed from Cain, 
takes his forefather's action of violence, it's clearly a story that was told and remembered by his descendants and admired in some way, and turns it into something perverse, something even more terrible. He boasts and says, Lamech does, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, for hitting me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see, God, remember, had placed his mark on Cain, protecting him from violent death and swearing sevenfold vengeance on anyone who killed him. But now, some years later, God's action of mercy has been corrupted in its understanding, perhaps through Cain's own interpretation of it, Cain's own boasting about it, into a sign of Cain's powerful revenge instead of God's protection of him and his mercy. And Cain's descendant, Lamech, now crows about his own perverse power and violence. If a man wounds me, Lamech says, I will kill him. In fact, I have done so already. And if a young man, literally, the Hebrew, a child, strikes me, well, I will kill him too. In fact, Lamech says, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, that's way too little. My revenge will be 77-fold. In contrast to the way of the wicked, this way of violence and vengeance, the way of the righteous is described briefly, very briefly, in verses 25 and 26. That contrast is interesting in this chapter. The way of the righteous is not outwardly impressive. And I think that difference is worth reflecting on as we consider these two paths that the scripture lays out, the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. For example, there's no mention of Adam and Eve or Seth and his descendants building a city. There are no cultural achievements highlighted in the line of Seth. No one is boasting about their power to defend themselves and take vengeance on their enemies. There's just a simple summary. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, and this is so poignant, God has appointed, that's what the word Seth means, appointed. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So much contained in those words. To Seth, the narrator continues, also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. One of the most significant points of contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth in this passage is how they respond to being mistreated. And I want to linger on that dissimilarity for a bit this morning. Cain's city, of course, as we've already noted, is based upon 
the fundamental logic of violence and revenge. And those things have a kind of logic. It's a perverse logic. Lamech, to ensure that no one threatens him, promises that he will destroy anyone who so much as strikes him. In contrast, Adam and Eve endure the murder of their son, not the striking of their son, not the wounding of their son, but the murder of their son. It is a terrible horror. But there is no indication that they seek any revenge against Cain. They submit to God's rule, his judgment of Cain, that he has the right to do it. And so they watch as Cain rather goes off under God's protection and founds a city. And then Seth grows up, obviously hearing this story. It was part of his name, the story of his brother's murder. But instead of seeking to put Cain to death, he simply marries and fathers a son and begins to lead the people in calling upon the name of the Lord. Beloved, these are two fundamentally different ways to live. And they form a crucial distinction between what it means to walk in the way of the righteous as opposed to the way of the wicked. You see, all of us, and I mean all of us, will be and have been mistreated and sinned against in this world. Sometimes in the most horrible of ways, right? That's true for every person in the world. Our parents will sin against us. Our siblings will sin against us, our friends, our spouse, our co-workers, our boss, fellow church members, our neighbors. There will be sins of omission committed against us. People will fall short of the requirements of righteousness, what love requires and how they treat us. There will also be sins of commission committed against us. People will maliciously, on purpose, harm us by their actions and their words. That will happen to you in this world. It happens to everyone. You will be slandered. You will be betrayed. You might even experience violence against yourself or someone you love. Beloved, these kinds of things will happen in this world. All of us bear the scars and can testify that we will be sinned against, that we have been sinned against. But the question that distinguishes the path of the righteous from the path of the wicked is not whether we are sinned against, but how do we respond when others sin against us, when others harm us? Now, most of us probably will not be tempted by the kind of hyperbole and extreme path of Lamech to boastfully threaten outright violence and destruction and 77-fold vengeance against those who dare to harm us or threaten us. But the logic of vengeance is subtle. And our Lord Jesus, remember, warned us not only against physical violence, but also against the violence hidden in our hearts. Not only the Lord Jesus, even the law of God in Leviticus, the Old Testament, forbade us from hating our brother, not only with our actions, but in 
our hearts as well. How many of us sinned against severely enough by a person that we've trusted or relied upon might be tempted to say in our hearts, if not out loud, they're dead to me, that person. Or I'm done with them. Or I'm writing him off or her off. That kind of language is symbolic. It's metaphorical. But those symbols and metaphors matter. Because it is not only our actions, but our words and our thoughts that are significant as those made in God's image. It is quite possible to avoid outward violence and vengeance while inwardly burning people to the ground in our hearts, whether with fury or with bitterness and coldness. The point is this, beloved. Bitterness and hatred and anger and holding a grudge are also forms of vengeance against those who have sinned against us. We can't escape from that. And if there's anything that the Bible makes clear, it is that vengeance is prohibited. It is off limits. It is forbidden for those who would walk in the way of the righteous. This is all over the place in the scriptures. We've read a small sampling of it today. Leviticus prohibits both outward and, notice, in the Old Testament, also it prohibits inward vengeance explicitly. As we've heard already this morning, the law of God tells us you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Notice that God's law excludes both the outward action of vengeance as well as the inward stewarding of the desire for vengeance in the heart by bearing a grudge. And that instead of vengeance, loving your neighbor as yourself is commanded. And in this context, the neighbor whom you are commanded to love in this way is the neighbor who has sinned against you. Proverbs adds its wisdom. It commands us and says, do not say, I will repay. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Notice again, Proverbs is not only prohibiting explicit violence or vengeance, but even the holding of that bitterness in your heart, even saying to yourself, I will repay one day that person for what they've done to me. Even that is excluded. The New Testament, of course, builds upon this teaching of God's law that is consistent throughout the scriptures. The Apostle Paul instructs his readers and says, repay no one evil for evil. Paul doesn't mince words here. He assumes that evil will be committed against his readers. And yet he tells us that we may not repay it. Remember, Paul is writing, not in the abstract, but to particular people, men and women who have themselves experienced violence, violent persecution. Men and women who have lost homes and livelihoods and even loved ones to their enemies. And yet Paul insists, he says, repay no one evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Paul, of course, is only building on the teaching of our Lord, for it was Jesus who taught his disciples and said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So how do we do this, right? How do we live in this kind of radical way? And it is radical, make no mistake. How can we possibly endure evil and not take vengeance against those who harm us? How can we be sinned against and not be embittered, not bear a grudge? I think the scriptures teach us a few things about this. First, we must not lose sight of the horror of the way of vengeance, of the logic of revenge. At least one of the problems with living in the way of bitterness and hatred and violence is that these things build on themselves, right? Bitterness begets what? More bitterness. Hatred begets more hatred. Violence begets more violence. This is the logic of so much of the warfare and conflict and human history. It is a cycle that ends only in destruction. The way of Cain and Lamech demonstrates this, how quickly things spiral, how it is the way of foolishness, for the way of vengeance only sharpens enmity and hatred. It builds up, it passes on to future generations after us. Remember, it is only a few short paragraphs between the boasting of Lamech at the end of Genesis 4 regarding his vengeance and the statement of God at the beginning of Genesis 6, where he says he found that the earth was filled with violence. Filled with it. Where did that come from? Yes, people's hearts and their own sin, but also from the way of Cain and the way of Lamech and what they passed on to their sons and daughters. When we repay evil for evil, when we hold bitterness in our heart, we end up destroying not only those whom we hate, but also ourselves and our children as well. This the Bible makes abundantly clear. But it is not only the horror of vengeance that should keep us from that fruitless and foolish path. It is also the reality that we ourselves in our sin, have actually been loved by God. That God has first graciously forgiven us and our evil against him. And it is only in that context that we are called to love our enemies. In Romans 12, Paul addresses his readers and he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And I think that beloved is important. It's intentional on Paul's part. We will forswear vengeance against our enemies and bitterness against those who have harmed us only as much as we are able to comprehend our own sin against God, the wickedness and evil of our own hearts and how God has dealt with us in that place that, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans, it was when we were enemies of God that he reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. God is the one who loves his enemies first. To put it more bluntly, Paul says, Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves because it is only the knowledge of our belovedness in Christ that will produce the fruit and the capacity to love our neighbor by not taking vengeance, by not holding a grudge against him when he sins against us. And so as we close this morning, I just want to simply remind you, beloved, there are only two fundamental ways to live. The scripture makes this abundantly clear. When one is summed up by Lamech, it's held out for us in our text this morning. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. That's one path. The other way is described by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says, let all bitterness, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, Paul says, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. One of these paths is the way of folly. The other is the way of wisdom. One of these paths will lead to death. The other to life. And there is no third way. There is no middle path. It is one or the other. May the Lord be merciful to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it holds out for us both wisdom and foolishness, both life and death. We ask this morning, Father, that we would be those who repent of our vengeance, who put away bitterness, Because you are the one who has loved us in our rebellion, in our violence, in our sin against you. While we were enemies, you have reconciled us to yourself through your Son. You have forgiven our sins. Help us also, Father, by your Spirit to forgive those who sin against us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.